Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 454, recorded on Tuesday, December 27th, 2022. Sorry, we're a little bit late after uh, the Christmas holiday, um, but we are here with our year-end anniversary roundup episode. Uh, we've done this in the past. Basically, these are the topics uh, from American history that we found interesting that happened in the years 150 years ago, 100 years ago, and 50 years ago that weren't enough that we wanted to do a whole episode on them earlier in the year. Uh, so they're just sort of uh, quick hits on these different topics. I guess we'll see how quick they are. Rachel is going to start us off 150 years ago in May 1872. Rachel, tell us about what significant thing happened in American history then. In May 1872, the first issue of the Popular Science Monthly magazine, now known as only Popular Science, uh, was published. So the Popular Science Monthly published science and technology articles written for the general but educated public. I'm quoting from the Wikipedia article. Early issues were mostly reprints of English periodicals. The journal became an outlet for writings and ideas of Charles Darwin, Thomas Henry Huxley, Louis Pasteur, Henry Ward Beecher, Charles Sanders Pierce, William James, Thomas Edison, John Dewey, and James McKean Cattell. There was some turbulence uh, in the magazine world in 1915 when the then owner sold the name and started the Scientific Monthly, which did cause a short lapse in publishing in the latter half of the year. So after the sale of the name, the Popular Science Monthly started to publish issues intended for a broader audience, and issues started to include more illustrations and shorter articles, while the Scientific Monthly continued to write more academic articles. In the late 1940s, the monthly was taken off the cover, and the magazine became known simply as Popular Science. Um, as technology evolved, regular columns devoted to car maintenance and reviews of the latest car models were added. During the boom of the internet usage in the 1990s, Popular Science launched PopSci.com, where articles are published daily. Now, in the current decline of print media, the last physical print issue of Popular Science was published in April 2021. And interestingly enough, the Internet Archive and Google Books have digital copies of almost the entire run of the magazine, um, at least through 2009. And Popular Science Magazine lives on as a solely digital publication. Later in 1872, on November 5th, the U.S. presidential election was held. President Ulysses S. Grant was reelected to a second term easily, despite a split in the Republican Party with free market liberals aligning with some Southern Democrats to support newspaper publisher Horace Greeley of New York, who ended up dying anyway later in November between the popular election and the Electoral College vote. 
In the popular election before his death, Greeley had only carried six southern or border states in total. We've previously discussed the 1872 campaign and the liberal Republicans with their cold attitude toward Reconstruction in our episode 424 from May 2022, earlier this year, on the Amnesty Act of 1872. Despite the liberal Republicans ostensibly being the party of free market capitalism, the actual rising second industrial revolution tycoons threw their support and campaign cash firmly behind Grant for re-election. In addition to President Grant being more controllable and a popular war hero, Greeley was a weird annoying doofus candidate anyway. Four southern states had their elections thrown out for irregularities, including three won by Grant. Besides all the infamous corruption stuff surrounding, but never directly implicating Grant within his cabinet and administration, he was waging more Indian wars too in 1872, and this would continue into his second term. We will probably be talking about that next year, hopefully in a more comprehensive way. So our final story from 1872 is uh, about an extremely cool diamond hoax where two con men claimed to have found diamonds in the American Mountain West and lured extremely prominent big money investors and famous politicians on both coasts. Now, unfortunately for the scammers, the U.S. Geological Survey had just completed a major survey of that exact area in question and were able, in November 1872, uh, bust the hoax and prove that the diamonds were planted on site. So getting deeper into the story... Two prospectors, who were also cousins, named Philip Arnold and John Slack, showed up in San Francisco talking about their great find of a diamond mine, and then they showed off a bag of diamonds. News of this mine spread far and wide and attracted prominent investors. These investors got the quote-unquote reluctant cousins to talk about their find and convinced them to show a mining engineer the location where they found the diamonds. Arnold and Slack led that engineer on a rambling, disorienting trip to the place where they found the diamonds, where there was a field with gems in the ground. These gems were valued by Tiffany at $150,000. So after the mining engineer made his report, a very glowing report about this fertile field of gems, more investors came forward eager to invest in the mine, including such prominent businessmen and politicians as Bank of California founder William Chapman Ralston, General George S. Dodge, Horace Greeley, Asbury Harpending, George McClellan, Baron von Rothschild, and Charles Tiffany of Tiffany & Co. The investors bought out Arnold & Slack for $660,000, which is $14.9 million in modern dollars, and set up the San Francisco and New York Mining and Commercial Company. The company hired New York attorney Samuel Latham Mitchell Barlow as legal representative, representative, and also added U.S. Congressman Benjamin F. Butler to the legal staff. Butler was given 1,000 shares for amending the General Mining Act of 1872 to include, quote, valuable mineral deposits to the language of the bill to allow for legal mining claims to diamond fields. So the company sent out another mining engineer, Harry Jannon, to further evaluate the cousin's find. Arnold and Slack led him and a group of investors to a location now known as Diamond Peak, in the northwest corner of the Colorado Territory. They found enough diamonds in the ground to satisfy Jannon and the investors, and Jannon wrote up a very optimistic evaluation of the land. And then, purely by chance, Jannon had an encounter with geologist Clarence King, who had just completed a survey of the 40th parallel, which covered the supposed diamond field. King and his team didn't find any trace of a diamond mine on their survey trip. So King sent geologist Samuel Franklin Emmons and cartographer A.D. Wilson to investigate the land, 
with King joining them later. The three men located the site and pretty much immediately knew that Arnold and Slack had salted the land with the gems. They knew what geologic conditions were required to form the gems and concluded that there was no way that the various gems could ever be found at the same site. King and his men informed the investors of the hoax and further investigation uncovered that Arnold and Slack had bought cheap cast-off diamonds in London and Amsterdam and that most of the diamonds were South African in origin. Arnold settled lawsuits from Diamond & Company investors and later became a banker in Kentucky. He died a few years later of pneumonia contracted after being wounded in a shootout with a rival banker. Slack lived a quiet life as a casket maker and undertaker in New Mexico and died in 1896 at the age of 76. Now, the uh, podcast from Australia, which I love, Bunta Vista, evaluates scams uh, based on a number of criteria. And I thought we could evaluate this one. One of their criteria is uh, who does it target, right? Is it innocent people who don't have a lot of money? That's not cool. If it targets uh, rich guys and politicians, that's hilarious. So check off that one for uh, this uh, this is also a creative scam in terms of the creativity. Uh, they put in some real legwork here. I think that's particularly uh, impressive. Uh, you know, it maybe is not as uh, easy as, uh, you know, doing a phishing link to get someone's uh, ape uh, NFTs or whatever. But, uh, you know, it's uh, pretty good. They, they went out there and, and did the salting. Uh, and uh, I think it's also hilarious how uh, immediately they got caught uh after hooking in all these rich guys because uh, they just happened to somebody happened to run into the U.S. Geological Survey, which had just been out there in the area. So overall, a pretty fun scam, I would say. I agree. And yeah, you got to appreciate the hustle for sure. Uh, okay, so Rachel, in 1922, uh, we've done a bunch of episodes about things that happened in 1922, I think, but uh, we did want to pull out one from late 1922 that's actually a real, like, real, real short one-day thing, uh, but it was sort of uh, interesting food for thought, right? Right. So on November 21st, 1922, uh, the first woman U.S. senator served for one day um, she was an honorary interim appointee from Georgia, and her name was Rebecca Latimer Felton. And uh, she was literally a former slave owner who was wildly pro-lynching, and she was considered a feminist. Uh, she worked for equal rights for middle-class white women, arguing that they needed an education so they could exert more influence and power inside the home and help guide the men in their life to make proper decisions. Um, that that philosophy wasn't really uh, well-liked or popular or shared by many people. So she kind of pivoted and became a suffragist. Um, women's suffrage was, wasn't was very popular in the South, so it was a pretty uh, difficult position to be in. Um, at 87 years, nine months, and 22 days old, at the time she was sworn in, she was the oldest freshman senator to enter the Senate. Uh, her honorary day in the Senate was used to boost the reputation of Walter F. George, who won the Senate seat in a special election after incumbent Senator Thomas E. Watson died. Uh, George could have been sworn in immediately after the special election when the Senate reconvened, but he decided to throw Felton a bone to curry favor with women voters who had just gotten the right to vote after the 19th Amendment. Georgia did kind of suffer from very low women voter turnout, so it was kind of just to throw them a bone and... Um, make voting seem more popular and better for women to do. Um, oh, and also one of her earliest childhood memories, which she later recounted in one of the earliest documentary films, 
was watching the Trail of Tears expulsion of the natives from Georgia. So she was really a truly evil person, probably not the best exemplar of a, of a prominent woman politician uh, who got to be the first woman U.S. senator. But And I think that's uh, kind of a cautionary tale um, while we're clamoring to have the first woman president uh, we got to be really careful who that first woman president is and not just pick some random white lady who's pro-lynching. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, truly a, a land of contrasts. Well, 50 years later, that brings us to 1972, January 25th, and we get sort of the polar opposite of uh, Rebecca Latimer Felton in the form of Shirley Chisholm launching her presidential campaign for 1972. Rachel, could you tell us a little bit about who Shirley Chisholm was and what her campaign was about and why it's significant. Yeah. So Shirley Chisholm was the first black major party candidate to run for president. There had been a black candidate that ran for the communist party of the United States of America, but uh, Shirley Chisholm was the first major party candidate. She launched her candidacy on January 25th, 1972. And, uh, she was also the first woman to run as a Democratic presidential candidate. Um, the Republicans had fielded a woman candidate um, eight years earlier. Um, and although she was a black woman, she focused on campaigning to be a president for all, saying, quote, I'm not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I'm not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman and equally proud of that. I'm the candidate of the people, and my presence before you symbolizes a new era in American political history, end quote. However, she got little support from the Democratic Party, with her campaign only spending $300,000 in total. At the 1972 Democratic National Convention in Miami Beach, Florida, she ended up with 152 delegates. This gave her a fourth-place standing versus George McGovern's 1,728 delegates. Although she didn't win many votes, Chisholm said she ran for office, quote, in spite of hopeless odds to demonstrate the sheer will and refusal to accept the status quo, end quote. Her candidacy was a huge inspiration to black women politicians, including Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who worked on the presidential campaign, and her slogan, unbought and unbossed, has been the rallying cry for progressives up to the present day. Shirley Chisholm, obviously a very interesting political figure, uh, not just because of her presidential campaign. For example, uh, she had gotten uh, assigned to the House Agriculture Committee after her election, uh, even though she represented a very urban district in Brooklyn. And she used that uh, to work on uh, issues like uh, feeding the poor and so forth, um, things like the Women, Infant, and Ch uh, Women Infants, and Children program, uh, the Supplemental Nutrition program. Uh, the, these projects, you know, as as she said, uh, poor babies have milk and poor children have food as a result of these projects, uh, and these were the type of. Uh, things that she was working on uh, even before she was uh, running for president. And so she has this very important legacy that has made a huge difference in a lot of people's lives, which I think is important to mention too, right? So that it doesn't just seem like she was, uh, you know, this uh, trivia uh, point in terms of who was the first of X, Y, and Z categories to run for president. Uh, and, and so I, I think, you know, there's, if you're not familiar with her, I'm sure most of our listeners are, but, you know, uh, check her out. Um, 
significantly. Uh, she voted for Hale Boggs to be the House Majority Leader uh, over John Conyers, uh, who was uh, African-American. And uh, we're going to talk about Hale Boggs more in just a moment. Uh, but we've got a few other topics to run through first in the year 1972. On February 2nd, the last U.S. draft lottery occurred, which has never resumed since. It wasn't necessarily clear at the time that it was the final lottery because another one was meant to happen in December 1972 to be the official last one held, but it never happened because former President Harry Truman died right then and it was canceled and that was that. In the end, the February 1972 lottery was the last one held, and this came only a year after the Nixon administration had gotten Congress to pass a short-term extension. It was fairly clear by the start of 1972 that things were wrapping up with the draft. On June 28th, building on this, U.S. President Richard Nixon announced that no new draftees will be sent to Vietnam. It's worth noting that U.S. ground operations had actually ended in October 1971. That's also going to be important for something we're going to talk about in a moment. Ending the draft had been a 1968 campaign promised by Richard Nixon and was a hobby horse among an ascendant cadre of conservative intellectuals and policy wonks because they realized that the draft came with a lot of political problems and an all-volunteer military might be easier to manage and more competent in the field anyway, or reliable if you don't like that choice of words. It's probably also worth reminding ourselves that ending the draft in 1972 was one of the reasons Nixon won such a huge re-election margin that year, which is the first year that 18-year-olds could vote, uh, despite the uh, later retroactively negative views of him and his presidency, right? Sometimes people dismiss it and, you know, oh, how could anyone have supported Nixon? Well, look at what he was actually doing. There's a reason he cruised to re-election in 72. Uh, another interesting fact is that this development was accompanied by two significant changes as part of the shift to an all-volunteer military. One, the U.S. Army began TV advertising for recruitment for the first time, and two, volunteer pay was boosted to incentivize people joining up willingly. Selective service registration came back in 1980 under President Carter, but there has never actually been a draft lottery since February 1972. Um, and also one other thing was that uh, apparently uh, somebody who was drafted in 1972 in that last lottery was serving in the U.S. military all the way until 2011. Uh, and then uh, retired at that point. Um, but that's just sort of an interesting fact uh, spanning the decades. Okay, so there is one other significant incident from 1972 that is pretty directly related to the decline and end of the U.S. military draft. So on October 12th and 13th uh, was the USS Kitty Hawk riot on board that aircraft carrier as it was off the coast of North Vietnam participating in the U.S. aerial bombing campaign there. The violent clashes that briefly threatened to become an all-out armed battle for control of the ship were classified as a race riot and featured attacks between the mostly new crew members, which newly included a higher proportion of black servicemen than in the past because of the end of the draft, reducing the interest of white men in becoming sailors to reduce their combat exposure. The enlarged contingent of young black sailors included more vocal opponents of the war, especially after an aggravating series of incidents in segregated Philippines stopover points on the way to Vietnam right before this happened. I don't remember if or how much we mentioned the Kitty Hawk riot in our May 2021 bonus episode on Vietnam war resistance among U.S. military personnel, which we haven't unlocked yet, but we will probably unlock this week or next week. When order was restored on board the Kitty Hawk, it resumed the bombing flights over North Vietnam. 
I think we may have mentioned the aftermath beyond the riot, which was that the ship returned to San Diego several weeks later, and 27 black service members were charged over the riot, while not a single white sailor, airman, or marine was charged for their involvement. There was also a congressional investigation in addition to the court-martial proceedings. So, um, Rachel, I don't know if you had heard much about this beyond, I guess, what we might have uh, talked about with that documentary that we reviewed in that previous episode that we're going to unlock. Uh, no, not really. I, I think it kind of ties into the fact that uh, high school U.S. history kind of ends at World War II, and we definitely didn't get into a lot about Vietnam, and it wasn't something that we co I covered in any college history classes either. So uh, definitely haven't really heard much about this incident. And it was definitely a very racialized, racist confrontation that occurred on the ship, but also there is that element as well that some of these black volunteers who were there because there were now fewer white volunteers due to the end of the draft, they were upset about their, even though they had volunteered, right, because they needed the money or maybe they were compelled by court order or something like that, they were there not very willingly and felt like the war was not uh, being waged for their interest or benefits and was hurting people that had nothing, you know, that they had nothing against, right? So there, explicitly, there were lots of references in the run-up to this uh, confrontation on board the ship with certain black service members complaining about the war as a whole. Uh, and again, we're going to talk more about that later. Yeah, that, that Vietnam War resistance episode, we did really touch on race and how how race affected the, the anti-war uh, drafty movement, for sure. Switching gears a bit, on March 3rd, 1972, the evil Stone Mountain Confederate Monument was finished, which incredibly was only 50 years ago uh, from today. Uh, Stone Mountain was once an interesting geological Monadnock formation in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Georgia, rising more than 800 feet above its surroundings and nearly 1,700 feet above sea level. But after the American Civil War, it gradually became a kind of memorial site to Lost Cause supporters of the failed Confederate secession from the United States. Allegedly, it may have been the ceremonial site of the refounding of the new Ku Klux Klan in 1915, and certainly there were many cross burnings on top of the mountain over the years. For several generations since the war, the concept of an official memorial or statue on the mountain in a memorial park was promoted. Eventually, Gutzon Borglum, a northern sculptor who was involved with the new Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s, which the private owner of the mountain at the time was also a part of, began planning a very elaborate sculpture honoring a huge number of prominent Confederate officers, although other concepts proposed called for a memorial to the original Klan of the Reconstruction era. The U.S. government even provided some support for the project. I find that kind of incredible and shocking. Uh, but despite carving Robert E. Lee's head, which was later blasted away to restart the project, Borglum eventually quit the project and fled the state, famously going on to design the Mount Rushmore Presidential Memorial instead, another desecration of a sacred site. The project floundered on for a few more decades, but the backlash to federal desegregation efforts in the 1950s kicked off a new effort by the state of Georgia to build a Confederate monument there. In 1963, the nationally recognized war memorial sculptor Walker Hancock, originally of Missouri, was picked to design it. Another sculpture of his that some listeners might recognize was Hancock's Angel of the Resurrection Pennsylvania Railroad World War II Memorial at 30th Street Station in Philadelphia. Hancock finished work at Stone Mountain on March 3, 1972, 50 years ago this year. 
The finished Confederate memorial carving on the side of Stone Mountain is, and I'm quoting now from Wikipedia, the largest bas-relief sculpture in the world and depicts three Confederate leaders of the Civil War, President Jefferson Davis and Generals Robert E. Lee and Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson on their favorite horses, Blackjack, Traveler, and Little Sorrel, respectively. The sculpture was cut 42 feet, 13 meters deep into the mountain and measures 90 feet or 27 meters in height and 190 feet or 58 meters in width. And it lies 400 feet or 120 meters above the ground, end quote. There was also a fake plantation below the Confederate monument opened in 1963 intended to promote false information about conditions for slaves in the pre-liberation American South. The Plantation Living History Museum still exists today, I believe, uh, although, I don't know, maybe the content has been updated. The broader park with various Confederate monuments and flags and walking trails officially opened on the 100th anniversary of Lincoln's assassination in 1965. Later, the park was repurposed for the 1996 Atlanta Summer Olympics, hosting the tennis, archery, and track cycling events. There's a cable car up the mountain and various laser and fireworks shows at night, and apparently also some of the Stranger Things scenes for Netflix were filmed in the park. In the last several years, there have been repeated proposals to destroy the monument once and for all, with the head of the national NAACP calling it the largest shrine to white supremacy in the history of the world. Stacey Abrams, two-time candidate for governor of Georgia, said it should be sandblasted off the mountain. Prior to the Civil War, the mountain had been a granite quarry site, a tourist destination, and an indigenous site of various native cultures going back into prehistory. Okay, moving forward to March 22nd, uh, the Supreme Court ruled on Eisenstadt v. Baird, and the Supreme Court ruled that unmarried people have the right to access contraception on the same basis as married couples. Uh, the, the court struck down a Massachusetts law prohibiting the dis distribution of contraceptives to unmarried people for the purpose of preventing pregnancy, ruling that it violated the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, the decision effectively legalized heterosexual premarital sex in the United States. Uh, the decision was six to one, and Chief Justice Berger was the lone dissenter. The most famous sentence of the ruling was, quote, if the right of privacy means anything, it is the right of the individual, married or single, to be free from unwarranted governmental intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting a person as the decision whether to bear or beget a child, end quote. And it has been used as precedent for decisions allowing people under 16 to purchase contraceptives and in Lawrence v. Texas striking down state sodomy laws. Um, quoting from the Wikipedia article, Eisenstadt v. Baird has been described as, quote, among the most influential in the United States during the entire century by any manner or means of measurement, end quote. Uh, Rachel is going to continue now with the Sunshine Silver Mine Fire in Idaho. Yes, on May 2nd, uh, there was a Sunshine Silver Mine Fire um, in Idaho, and the Sunshine Mine is between the cities of Kellogg and Wallace in northern Idaho. Wallace is a famous mining town. We've talked about it many times on the show. Um, it was the worst mine disaster in Idaho history and one of the worst in U.S. history. Uh, smoke was detected at 11.40 a.m., and an evacuation was called at 12.03 p.m., uh, men were hoisted out of the lower levels of the mine to get to the main shaft until 1.02 p.m. when the hoistman was overcome by smoke and carbon monoxide. Of the 173 men on shift at the time of the fire, 80 were able to evacuate and two men were able to find a safe spot near a borehole to get fresh air. Um, the remaining 91 men died of carbon monoxide poisoning. 
The cause of the fire was thought to be the spontaneous combustion of some refuse near scrap timber, according to the Bureau of Mines. Uh, the mine was closed for seven months after the fire, but it opened up again after that, as it did produce the most silver ore in the country. And um, at one point, it produced 18% of the U.S.'s silver ore. So it was a big moneymaker, and so they had to reopen it after the fire. So uh, it is very sad, and uh, there is a, a Sunshine Miners Memorial um, next to the site, erected by sculptor Ken Lawn. So uh, very, very sad uh, industrial disaster. Returning now to the 1972 presidential election, on May 15th, former Governor George C. Wallace of Alabama was shot and paralyzed by Arthur Bremer at a political rally in Laurel, Maryland. Uh, Wallace was a nationally infamous segregationist who had run a very disruptive third-party general election bid for president in 1968, winning 13.5% of the national vote and carrying five southern states. Had just a couple of states gone differently, especially with a less militaristic running mate on Wallace's ticket, the election would have been thrown to the U.S. House of Representatives as he had hoped. He was thinking that he could force a grand compromise there to end federal policies in the South that he didn't like, much like the Compromise of 1877. In 1972, Wallace ran in the Democratic primaries on much the same platform, although claiming he was now a moderate and no longer a segregationist. He won the primary contests in Florida, North Carolina, Tennessee, and increasingly worryingly also Michigan, where his racist message seemed to be gaining traction among non-Southern white racists. He moved on to campaign in Maryland, where he would also go on to win, but there his campaign effectively ended abruptly when he was shot in the spine, wounded and permanently paralyzed by gunman Arthur Bremer, who seems to have been one of many would-be assassins of the era who was hoping to get famous and didn't seem to have a political agenda. Bremer seemingly only shot Wallace after deciding it would be too difficult to shoot President Nixon instead. In response to the Wallace shooting, Nixon significantly expanded Secret Service protection to various other candidates like Shirley Chisholm, as well as to Ted Kennedy, just to be on the safe side. Many of the other candidates, including Chisholm and also President Nixon and Vice President Spiro Agnew, visited Wallace during his 20 days in the hospital in Maryland, marking a turning point in the former governor's career and public image, bringing him into the realm of political acceptability and legitimacy. Although his presidential aspirations essentially died with the shooting and a 1976 campaign went nowhere because the public viewed him as helpless, he gained a great deal of sympathy from across the spectrum despite his long history of outspoken racism, and he used the devastating life change to pivot away from that and repudiate his old views. Eventually, he would claim born-again evangelical status, apologize for his past actions, and reclaim the Alabama governorship in 1982, for a fourth and final term. On May 15th, uh, 1972, Okinawa was officially handed back to Japan, although a U.S. base remains there to this day. After the Battle of Okinawa in World War II, the U.S. military governed the Ryukyu Islands, of which the Okinawa Island Group is a part. This continued until 1952, when governors transferred to the United States Civil Administration of the Ryukyu Islands, or U.S. CAR. U.S. CAR oversaw all Ryukyuan government operations and could overrule any decisions made by the Ryukyuan government. The official currency from 1948 to 1958 was B-type military script, colloquially known as B-yen, after which the U.S. dollar was brought into use. The government issued Ryukyuan passports and postage stamps, and cars even drove on the right side of the road as opposed to the left, as in the rest of Japan. 
On May 15, 1972, control of the Ryukyu Islands was officially given back to Japan, and U.S. car was abolished. However, there is still a heavy military presence in Okinawa, with thousands of military personnel stationed there to this day. And I think we have discussed talking more about the Okinawan uh, occupation um, in a future episode. Obviously a very controversial military presence and would warrant probably a more detailed episode on its own. Yeah. On May 26th, the SALT-1 treaty was signed uh, from the Arms Control Association summary provided in 2002. Quote, begun in November 1969, the strategic arms limitation talks SALT had produced by May 1972, both the anti-ballistic missile ABM treaty which bans nationwide strategic missile defenses, and the Interim Agreement, an executive legislative agreement that capped U.S. and Soviet ICBM and SLBM forces. Under the Interim Agreement, both sides pledged not to construct new ICBM silos, not to increase the size of existing ICBM silos significantly, and capped the number of SLBMs and SLBM-carrying submarines. The agreement ignored strategic bombers and did not address warheads, leaving both sides free to enlarge their deployed forces by adding multiple warheads to their ICBMs and SLBMs and increasing their bomber-based forces. The agreement limited the United States to 1,054 ICBM silos and 656 SLBM launch tubes. The Soviet Union was limited to 1,607 ICBM silos and 740 SLBM launch tubes. In November 1972, Washington and Moscow agreed to pursue a follow-on treaty to SALT-1, end quote. Although talks did continue, they did not result in another treaty signing until 1979, and the SALT-2 treaty was abandoned in 1980 without U.S. Senate ratification after a new breakdown in U.S.-Soviet relations. The Anti-Ballistic Missile, or ABM, treaty from the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks in 1972, which, to be clear, was a treaty against anti-ballistic missile systems, not a treaty against ballistic missiles, uh, was ended in uh, 2002, just after 9-11, by George W. Bush, allegedly because the U.S. needed to be able to design, test, and build missile defense systems against smaller rogue states, although this has yet to really materialize since then. The clear problem and danger with anti-ballistic missile defense systems, which is why the treaty was signed in the first place, is that they would allow the possibility of a successful first-strike nuclear surprise attack without fear of mutually assured destruction in response, since the responding missiles would get shot down in theory. Critics argued, and it basically seems to have been borne out, that the end of the ABM treaty 20 years ago would result in a renewed arms race, according to an article that you can read from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, plus, missile interceptors simply do not work in most cases. They're bad without daylight, they're bad at intercepting high-speed missiles, and they're easily confused by dummy parts that fly off incoming missiles deliberately to distract and overwhelm those targeting systems. So these anti-ballistic missile systems uh, raise tensions without improving anyone's actual security. Moving on, June 17th was the Watergate break-in, obviously, also part of the 1972 election, but I don't really want to get bogged down in that. All of our listeners probably know tons of things about it or can find out more about them elsewhere. And that brings us to the end of June, which Rachel is going to talk about. So on June 29th, uh, the chaotic Furman v. Georgia Supreme Court ruling resulted in about four years of a de facto period of no death penalty in the U.S. before it was reinstated 
although over 600 sentences were permanently reduced. In a pure curium decision, so that meant that five justices each wrote opinions agreeing with the ruling, but they disagreed on the rationale, so there was no leading opinion that got signed onto by other justices, which is typical for other Supreme Court rulings. So uh, pure curium means by the court. Um, there wasn't any um, any lead opinion um, and lead author of the ruling. Uh, but on this decision, the court ruled that the death penalty, as it then stood, violated the Eighth Amendment banning cruel and unusual punishments. For four years, states started to enact laws that tried to work around Furman v. Georgia, such as mandating two separate trials to convict and sentence criminals, and imposing standards to guide judges and juries in imposing capital sentences. Laws that mandated the death penalty for certain crimes were also amended and rewritten to get around Furman, Furman v. Georgia. So the ruling did get rid of any law that had a mandatory automatic death penalty sentence for crimes like rape or murder. So at that point, those laws got thrown out. And so then laws that uh, created these standards uh, uh, that could stand up to um, uh, appellate review were written and um, tried in, in the Supreme Court. So in 1976, several cases known as the July 2 cases were brought before the Supreme Court. And the decision from these cases affirmed that the death penalty itself was constitutional but there had to be a rational standard for imposing the death penalty that could stand up to appellate review. Um, and mandatory death penalty sentences were still considered unconstitutional. So there was kind of a, an interesting four-year period where there was no death penalty. And unfortunately, although a lot of the uh, Supreme Court justices were personally anti-death penalty, um, they did decide that the death penalty, um, as the new laws were written, was constitutional. This brings us to July 1972. We're back to talking about the Vietnam War. And this brings us to Jane Fonda's cool and good trip to North Vietnam. So we've done an episode previously, as we mentioned earlier, about the resistance inside the Army or RETA movement against the Vietnam War. Again, we'll probably be releasing that in the next week or so uh, from our Patreon to general listenership. Actress Jane Fonda was a prominent supporter of the movement for several years, sometimes being arrested on trumped-up charges and being monitored by the NSA, and she tried to bolster anti-war troops whenever possible, including tours around the United States ahead of deployments. In 1972, however, as the war was already winding down, but the U.S. was still extensively bombing North Vietnam from the air, as we mentioned earlier with the USS Kitty Hawk, Fonda finally traveled to North Vietnam herself. This would have probably been a controversial trip regardless because of her messages home to the U.S. public about the aerial bombing campaign, but the really memorable controversy that became part of the American right's stabbed-in-the-back mythology about why they supposedly lost the war was when she posed for a photo with a North Vietnamese anti-aircraft battery. This photo was not very consistent with her peace message either. Overall, the perspective of our show is that we think her trip was a good thing and important, and a case could be made that she was promoting legitimate self-defense with that photo, but she has repeatedly said that was not the case and not her intention. So we'll present some context and then her own words, and you can judge for yourself. Uh, for the sake of giving a brief account, I'm just going to quote here from Jane Fonda's Wikipedia article. Uh, between 1965 and 1972, almost 300 Americans, mostly civil rights activists, teachers, and pastors, traveled to North Vietnam to see firsthand the war situation with the Vietnamese. News media in the United States predominantly provided a U.S. viewpoint 
and the American travelers to North Vietnam were routinely harassed upon their return home. Fonda also visited Vietnam, traveling to Hanoi in July 1972 to witness firsthand the bombing damage to the dikes. After touring and photographing dike systems in North Vietnam, she said the United States had been intentionally targeting the dike system along the Red River. Columnist Joseph Kraft, who was also touring North Vietnam, said he believed the damage to the dikes was incidental and was being used as propaganda by Hanoi, and that if the U.S. Air Force were truly going after the dikes, it would do so in a methodical, not harem-scarum way. Sweden's ambassador to Vietnam, however, observed the bomb damage to the dikes and described it as methodic. Other journalists reported that the attacks were aimed at the whole system of dikes. Fonda was photographed seated on a North Vietnamese anti-aircraft gun. The photo outraged a number of Americans and earned her the nickname Hanoi Jane. In her 2005 autobiography, she wrote that she was manipulated into sitting on the battery. She had been horrified at the implications of the picture. In a 2011 entry at her official website, Fonda explained, Quote, it happened on my last day in Hanoi. I was exhausted and an emotional wreck after the two-week visit. The translator told me that the soldiers wanted me to sing a song. He translated as they sung. It was a song about the day Uncle Ho declared their country's independence in Hanoi's Ba Din Square. I heard these words. All men are created equal. They were given certain rights. Among these are life, liberty, and happiness. These are the words Ho pronounced at the historic ceremony. I began to cry and clap. These young men should not be our enemy. They celebrate the same words Americans do. The soldiers asked me to sing for them in return. I memorized a song called De Ma Di, written by anti-war South Vietnamese students. I knew I was slaughtering it, but everyone seemed delighted that I was making the attempt. I finished. Everyone was laughing and clapping, including me. Here is my best, honest recollection of what happened. Someone, I don't remember who, led me towards the gun, and I sat down, still laughing, still applauding. It all had nothing to do with where I was sitting. I hardly even thought about where I was sitting. The cameras flashed. It is possible that it was a setup, that the Vietnamese had it all planned. I will never know. But if they did, I can't blame them. The buck stops here. If I was used, I allowed it to happen. A two-minute lapse of sanity that will haunt me forever. But the photo exists, delivering its message regardless of what I was doing or feeling. I carry this heavy in my heart. I have apologized numerous times for any pain I may have caused servicemen and their families because of this photograph. It was never my intention to cause harm. Uh, so, returning to the rest of the Wikipedia section, Fonda made radio broadcasts on Hanoi Radio throughout her two-week tour, describing her visits to villages, hospitals, schools, and factories that had been bombed, and denouncing U.S. military policy. During the course of her visit, Fonda visited American prisoners of war, POWs, and brought back messages from them to their families. When stories of torture and re uh, of returning POWs were later being publicized by the Nixon administration, Fonda said that those making such claims were hypocrites and liars and pawns, adding about the prisoners she visited, these were not men who had been tortured, these were not men who had been starved, these were not men who had been brainwashed. In addition, Fonda told the New York Times in 1973, I'm quite sure that there were incidents of torture, but the pilots who were saying it was a policy of the Vietnamese and that it was systematic, I believe that's a lie. Her visits to the POW camp led to persistent and exaggerated rumors which were repeated widely and continued to circulate on the internet decades later. Fonda, as well as the named POWs, have denied the rumors, and subsequent interviews with the POWs showed these allegations to be false. Persons named had never met Fonda. In a 1988 interview with Barbara Walters, Fonda expressed regret for some of her comments and actions, stating, 
I would like to say something, not just to the Vietnam veterans in New England, but to men who were in Vietnam, who I hurt, who and whose pain I caused to deepen because of the things that I said or did. I was trying to help end the killing and the war, but there were times when I was thoughtless and careless about it, and I'm very sorry that I hurt them. And I want to apologize to them and their families. I will go to my grave regretting the photograph of me in an anti-aircraft gun, which looks like I was trying to shoot at American planes. It hurt so many soldiers. It galvanized such hostility. It was the most horrible thing I could have done. It was just thoughtless. In a 60 Minutes interview on March 31st, 2005, Fonda reiterated that she had no regrets about her trip to North Vietnam in 1972, with the exception of the anti-aircraft gun photo. Turning now to October 16th, and again, the 1972 election. We mentioned earlier about Shirley Chisholm having supported Hale Boggs for majority leader, and this brings us to the Hale Boggs Nick Begich disappearance in Alaska. U.S. House Majority Leader Hale Boggs, a Democratic congressman from New Orleans who had originally come up as an opponent of the Huey and Earl Long machine and who later whipped much of the Great Society legislation through the U.S. House for LBJ, disappeared without a trace on October 16, 1972, alongside first-term Alaska Democratic Congressman Nick Begich. Uh, quoting now from the Hale Boggs Wikipedia article, As Majority Leader, Boggs often campaigned for others, including Representative Nick Begich of Alaska. On October 16, 1972, Boggs was aboard a twin-engine Cessna 310 with Representative Begich, who was facing a possible tight race in the November 1972 general election against the Republican candidate Don Young when the plane disappeared during a flight from Anchorage to Juneau. Also on board were Begich's aide, Russell Brown, and the pilot, Don Johns. The four were heading to a campaign fundraiser for Begich. The search for the missing aircraft and four men included the U.S. Coast Guard, Navy, Army, Air Force, Civil Air Patrol, and civilian fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters. The Cessna was required to carry an emergency locator transmitter per Alaska state law and federal law. No emergency transmission signal determined to be from the plane was heard during the search. In its report on the incident, the National Transportation Safety Board stated that the pilot's portable emergency transmitter, permissible in lieu of a fixed transmitter on the plane, was found in an aircraft at Fairbanks, Alaska. The report also notes that a witness saw an unidentified object in the pilot's briefcase that resembled, except for color, the portable emergency transmitter. The safety board concluded that neither the pilot nor aircraft had an emergency location transmitter. On November 24, 1972, the search was suspended after 39 days. Neither the wreckage of the plane nor the pilot's and passengers' remains were ever found. After a hearing and seven-minute deliberation by a jury, his death certificate was signed by Judge Dorothy Tyner. After Boggs and Begich were re-elected posthumously that November, House Resolution 1 of January 3, 1973, officially recognized Boggs' presumed death and opened the way for a special election. The same was done for Begich, end quote. So, unsurprisingly, there are some conspiracy theories about the disappearance, because uh, it's weird, but it is also extremely common for planes to crash without a trace in Alaska because of the vast wildernesses and severe weather. They aren't even the only prominent politicians to die in Alaska plane crashes, just one of the highest ranking, and they were in office at the time and not retired. Uh, light aircraft have a bad habit of crashing in general, but especially when trying to meet demanding political campaign schedules that tend to push unsafe flying to stay on track. So it's at least as likely, if never definitive, that this disappearance was a simple case of a lonely plane crash somewhere in Alaska without anything suspicious about it. However, 
Boggs had been on the Warren Commission, and so that raises some eyebrows regardless, and that inspired a Robert Ludlum novel, apparently. Boggs had also emerged as a vociferous public opponent of the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover, which infuriated President Nixon. So, again, you can see why people might speculate there was a motive for something weird to happen. Uh, as for Begich as a possible target of some conspiracy, that's pretty unlikely. He was new, and despite 1972 being a good year for Republicans broadly, the U.S. Democratic House majority overall was not especially close, even with Don Young eventually picking up the at-large Alaska seat in a special election, which he would then hold until his death in 2022, ironically also passing away on a flight, although apparently of natural causes in his old age, and it was a commercial flight across the U.S., but another trivia fact as we look back 50 years ago, guess who was running for Congress in this year's very weird ranked choice Alaska congressional race, along with Sarah Palin and the Democratic winner Mary Peltola? Nick Begich III, who was the Republican grandson of Congressman Nick Begich. Nick III was an Alaska state legislator, uh, but Democrat Peltola won both the special election and regular November elections, succeeding Don Young, who himself died in office, as we said. Young also twice defeated the widow of Congressman Begich in campaigns in the 1980s. So, a weird but interesting story from 1972. Uh, what else, Rachel, happened in 1972? Close us out here. There's three big things we want to talk about. Yes. So, on October 18th, which is my birthday, but obviously before I was born, uh, Congress overrode Nixon's veto, and the Clean Water Act of 1972 became law. Um, although Nixon vetoed the CWA on October 17th, uh, the Senate overrode the veto 52 to 12, and the House followed on October 18th and overrode it by 247 to 23, which enacted it into law. Uh, it was one of the U.S.'s first and most influential environmental laws, brought about by public outrage at industrial pollution, most famously the burning of the Cuyahoga River in Ohio. Uh, the CWA was enacted to restore and preserve the integrity of the nation's waters, provide resources for states to manage their waters, uh, fund wastewater treatment plants for the public good, and maintain the nation's wetlands. Uh, the CWA is administered by the EPA in coordination with states, and it's a very good and awesome law. Um, that probably would never be uh, passed by Republicans uh, ever again. So it, it's, a, it's an interesting time in history, the 1970s. There was all these landmark environmental laws, and it's pretty obvious that the Overton window has shifted very far to the right uh, since, since the 70s. Um, on October 27th, the Consumer Product Safety Act became law and was signed by President Nixon, uh, this landmark legislation established CPSC, an independent federal regulatory agency, and authorized the CPSC to develop standards, pursue recalls, and ban certain products. Uh, the agency was given authority to tackle consumer product hazards with a bipartisan board of five commissioners. Uh, CPSC regulates thousands of types of consumer products, ranging from kitchen appliances to children's toys to exercise equipment. As a result of CPSC's efforts, mandatory safety standards, and the enforcement of existing federal laws related to unsafe products, the agency has reported decreases in the number of consumer product-related fatalities and a significant reduction of injuries involving young children and adults. And uh, one notable thing, um, the, the Consumer Product Safety Commission has a very awesome Twitter. Um, it, it, it runs to the surreal, and I think it really... Uh, does a good job at highlighting um, product recalls and safety hazards in a, a really fun and interesting and engaging way 
that uh, otherwise would be probably be pretty easily lost in the news landscape. So I, I highly recommend that you check out USCPSC's Twitter and, uh, and follow them. And finally, uh, December 7th through the 14th, uh, it was the Apollo 17 mission and uh, the photograph of the Earth called the Blue Marble. So Apollo 17 was the final mission of the Apollo program, and it marked the last time humans have walked on the moon. Uh, geologic samples were taken, as well as experiments on mice to see if cosmic rays were harmful to them. Uh, quoting from the Wikipedia article, the mission broke several records for cruise space flight, including the longest crewed lunar landing mission, uh, 12 days, 14 hours, greatest distance from a spacecraft during an extravehicular activity of any type, 7.6 kilometers or 4.7 miles, longest total duration of lunar surface extravehicular activities, 22 hours, 4 minutes, largest lunar sample return, approximately 115 kilograms or 254 pounds, Longest time in lunar orbit, six days, four hours, and greatest number of lunar orbits, 75. Among their other, their other activities during the outbound trip, the crew photographed the Earth from the spacecraft as it traveled towards the moon. One of these photographs is now known as the Blue Marble. Um, it's uh, widely distributed. It's one of the most widely distributed photographs in the world. It's very famous. Um, I'm sure you've seen it on uh, in many places, probably like... Uh, school science textbooks, um, any story involving space. <laughs> it's just very, very famous. Um, Obviously, and, it's going to be posted with this episode when it goes yes. up. <laughs> and uh, I'd also like to draw your attention to our January 9th uh, episode, episode 406, uh, titled Critical Space Theory. Uh, 50 years ago, in January 1972, the U.S. Space Shuttle Program moved forward and humanity passed the top of the arc of manned spaceflight and began its descent away from the dream of the 1860s to the 1960s. So we really highlighted uh, NASA's space program and how uh, the 70s was really the peak of NASA in space exploration. So that wraps up our, our look into uh, events from 150, 150 years ago. All right. Well, Rachel, we're going to call it there. It was a great episode reviewing the year. Uh, as you just mentioned with the NASA episode on the space shuttle program, we did have other episodes this year about things that happened in 1922, for example, or 1972, uh, as well as 1872. Uh, and so you can check out those as well. But these were just sort of a few ones that we wanted to touch on, at least in some depth, but not a whole episode's length. And uh, as we said, we're going to unlock the Vietnam resistance episode, uh, but there won't be a new episode next week. Uh, we're going to take a holiday break and then regroup. We've got a fantastic stack of books we're working through, lots of great episode topics for 2023. So I hope everyone has a restful holiday season and a good New Year's. Thank you. And don't forget to subscribe to the Patreon to support our work if you haven't done so already and you love the show. Bye, Rachel. Bye.